0: Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. Fresh off of Talk the Thrones, The Ringer is introducing a new live Twitter aftershow covering season two of HBO's
1: Big Little Lies. Immediately after each episode, The Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes will be going live to give their initial reactions and break down everything we saw in the episode. And to kick us off, there will be a special season two preview airing on Friday, June 7th at 12 p.m. Pacific. So join Amanda and Mina for Big Little Live every Sunday on Twitter.
0: Welcome to the Ringer NBA show. This is the corner three. My name is Kevin O'Connor and I am joined today by the Ringer's resident Raptors fan and our associate editor, Danny Chow. We took game one. We took game one. It's a great night, Danny. And we have a great show for you today as well, though we are without Jonathan Charks. He is somewhere away. Unavailable today, unfortunately. But right, on today's he, show... He's, he's you know, in Hawaii, Hawaii
1: man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't want to say. <laughs> here, here you go. Charks is in Hawaii at a far better place right now. Danny's in Los Angeles. I am in Massachusetts. We're recording this at one thirty p.m. Eastern. And today's show, we're going to have like a... During the NBA Finals we're going to have our NBA Finals Draft Comparison Awards show where we're going to compare draft prospects to players in the NBA Finals but first Danny obviously we have to discuss Toronto's game 1 win over Golden State the Raptors won 118 to 109 to take a 1-0 lead in the series and all game long Golden State struggled to score in the half court how did Toronto do
1: it Danny the Raptors' defense is just completely locked in right now. And I was actually really, really impressed with what they did with Steph Curry. Sure, he dropped 34 points. Sure, you know, his stat line still looked very good, but he looked bothered. Uh, there wasn't a lot of support around him. The The Warriors put a lot of lineups that didn't really make sense around him. A lot of guys who didn't make plays, um, who were kind of just standing around. And I think a big part of that was just the Raptors kind of trusted what they had going for them in the regular season. So the one game that Steph Curry played uh, against the Raptors in their in their two-game regular season series, uh, he was hounded by Fred Van Vliet almost the entire game. And pretty much the same result occurred this time. Um, so across those two games, 72 possessions, Fred Van Vliet was the primary defender on Curry. Uh, and in those 72 possessions, Curry shot... 2-for-12 with Fred VanVleet on him. Mm.
0: And he was 1-for-6 in last night's game in 33 positions, so an identical shooting line for Steph.
1: Yeah. Fred VanVleet has kind of emerged as this unlikely postseason championship potential (laughs) run folk hero. I didn't expect it. Is he the curry curry stopper? Fred VanVleet. If you think about it. Stealing the title from his brother, Seth. Is he kind of the ideal Curry defender? Like, Van Vliet <laughs> is, is a really, really smart off-ball defender. He kind of has the strength to knock Curry off his spots. He has the low center of gravity to, you know, work his way around screens. And and he has the vision and kind of, like, just the know-how to know where he's supposed to be. And plus, he kind of beats Curry on the unlikeliness scale of him being a good defender. Like, the <laughs> dude is 5'10". What it, like, there's no reason why he should be defending Curry this well.
0: Yeah, Van Vliet did incredibly well individually. And as you said, Danny, Curry did seem bothered. And even though he did score 34 points, a lot of those buckets came from off-ball actions, whether it was off-screens, relocations, handoffs that led to either three-point attempts or layups or drawn fouls. A lot of his points came from off-ball actions. And that's partially because Van Vliet did such a great job on ball. And I think overall in that entire game, Toronto showed how Golden State's lack of potent off-ball shooters could be an issue for the Warriors in this series because they were constantly helping off, sometimes flat-out ignoring Draymond Green, Andre Iguodala, Jonas Derebko, and so on and so forth on that roster. DeMarcus Cousins as well, where they're just over-helping on Stephen Curry and Klay Thompson. And I think that's one of the reasons why we didn't see Steph and Clay, for that matter, have great games with the ball in their hands and why most of it came either off of Broken plays in transition, some of it came off of, like like we talk, just said, off-ball actions. But on the ball, I think for, Toron- um, for Golden State moving forward in this series, despite that success Toronto had, I still would like to see Draymond at the 5. He didn't play any minutes at the 5 in Game 1, which is odd to me when it seemed like the obvious decision for Steve Kerr. And then again, Green rarely was used as a screener for Stephen Curry. He was on a couple of occasions and Toronto did a good job against it, but I would have liked to have seen Kerr and the Warriors turn to that Draymond, Stephen Curry pick and roll more frequently in game one, especially when they were just uh, really struggling to get buckets during certain stretches of those games.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I wrote before the series was just the Raptors needed to win... You know, the the minutes in which Marc Gasol was on the floor and the fact that the Raptors were plus eight in game one with Marcus Gasol on and, and he played a pretty much flawless game. You you couldn't have asked more from him. Uh, he was very decisive. He pretty much shot the three every time he was open and he was open a lot because that was part of the Warriors strategy. Um, but yeah, I, I was actually wondering like why the Warriors weren't kind of trying to run him off the floor uh sooner. I, I it kind of comes down to Kerr not necessarily being uh a proactive coach <laughs> all the time because he has the weapons he has. He doesn't necessarily need to force the issue when he knows, you know, Steph, Clay, Draymond, they're they're eventually going to get going. But yeah, I I, I do wonder like once the Warriors decide, okay, we're just gonna go to our death lineup a little bit more uh a little bit earlier do the Raptors necessarily have a counter for that?
0: You know, I, I do wonder with the death lineup, the, the, the advantage of that is perhaps you do play a Marcus all off the floor. And if, if Toronto does choose to go small with Siakam at the five, that's where OG and being available is critical because if you're putting Siakam at the five and taking off Ibaka or Gasol, you are severely small. You are overmatched with size. And that's where, Golden State, as they have proven against Portland and Houston, can just kill you on the offensive boards if you are small. And last night, Toronto just looked like the flat-out bigger team across positions. They were long, they rebounded well, and obviously their length on defense created some issues for Golden State in the half court. Warriors scored only 0.84 points per play in the half court according to Cleaning Glass, which is horrific. But moving forward, I do wonder if maybe the inverse of this Danny is Do you go big? Do you try to do what Philadelphia did against Siakam, who had a tremendous game, where maybe you put a bigger guy on Pascal Siakam and then have Draymond as the guy roaming a little bit more? Um, Is there any logic to doing that rather than going small and instead just changing the matchups?
1: So who who would you put on, like Looney? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I feel like Draymond would probably take it as a point of pride to kind of shut Siakam down in game two, game three, just because he, he and he had talked about this um, in interviews with reporters. You know, he was on his heels for much of the night. Uh, Siakam was just basically taking it to him every single time down the floor, whether it was in the post, whether it was in transition. Um, Draymond is a supremely smart defender, but he often just guessed wrong on a lot of these plays, and Siakam made him pay for it.
0: Was the whole conversation about the Warriors don't need Kevin Durant overblown or are we or we collectively the collective we NBA Twitter overreacting to this game one performance without him where Golden State again like we just said at the top didn't have the potent off ball shooters that allowed Toronto to help off ball or um, is this just a one game thing and Golden State still can win the series without him Danny
1: I mean they could totally win this series I'm I'm overreacting because like this is Look, I've never experienced this before. Like this is this is a new feeling for me. So I'm I'm overreacting. But ultimately, no. I, I think the <laughs> the warrior strategy was was solid. Like you you trap, you double Kawhi, and then once he gets into the paint, you always have like that roving third guy. They basically created a huge wall around Kawhi. And Kawhi's not a guy like Giannis who can kind of shoot over guys. You know, he at this point in the the playoffs, his legs are shot. Uh he's largely trying to carve space out for himself, but they're they're basically airtight down in the paint. So they're forcing him to make really tough passes. He made some pretty gross passes last night uh, under duress. Um, I think the strategy is fine because, look, what are the odds that Siakam, who has been miserable for, you know, a, se- a series and a half prior to this, uh, that Fred Van Vliet continues his, Historically hot shooting, that everything clicks for the for the Raptors the way it does. I think, I don't know. I I, I think it's a it's a fair strategy to to continue with.
0: It, it's slim for sure, and I I, I agree with you, with you that Golden State can win the series without KD. I I picked them in six with or without KD. Right. One of the issues last night with their half court was the fact that they were turning the ball over when they were pressured. And this morning I saw some stuff on um on Twitter about how it actually wasn't. Golden State's half-court offense that was the issue. It was their transition defense. And it it was clear, like watching the game last night with Siakam beating them up up the floor, Danny Green beating them up the floor on a couple of occasions that they had some severe errors. But I was curious about why those transition errors were happening in the first place. So I pulled up Synergy and watched all 20 of Toronto's uh, possessions in in transition from last night. And on six of them, Golden State did get back. And on those six attempts, uh, the Raptors scored six points. On seven of them, Golden State tried to get back, but for a number of reasons, whether it was a broken play or a turnover or an unfortunate long rebound, On those seven, Toronto scored 10 points. And then the remaining seven, the Warriors didn't get back at all. They they just showed poor awareness. They miscommunicated, didn't cover guys. And on those, the Raptors scored 13 points. So it's clear that Golden State could have done a better job getting back. But again, I was curious why those happened. And I would argue that 13 of the 29 points that they scored on those 20 possessions were a direct result of the lack of space and goal and state has from mm-hmm. the lack of shooters on the roster and from the pressure that Toronto was able to put on Steph that they were to put put on clay by trapping or helping on showing on pick and rolls or just even there's a couple of occasions where Steph would bring the ball up and he would have two guys on him and be forced to pass. Yeah, he made and those some tough either, passes. A lot of tough passes for Steph last night, and whether it was a turnover or just a tough pass, sometimes it just led to a poor shot, and I think that that still, to me, is the source of one of the issues for Golden State. Their effort can get better, but it's still about the lack of spacing that they had, which again comes back to KD, who Chris Haynes reported should be back in Game 3, but more likely 4. He reported that this morning on Yahoo Sports. Uh.
1: Uh, they couldn't. They couldn't let you know Raptors fans enjoy this for like another you know two days. <laughs> <laughs> what are the Raptors gonna do against KD? Like
0: I, I don't know. I don't know. Get, uh, well, that's the other side of it. If you if KD does return during the series, Kawhi Leonard instead of having the ability to roam off the ball and disrupt every single one of Golden State's actions, he's gonna have to be stuck to KD uh, on. Off ball, on ball, regardless of where KD is on the floor, Kawhi will have to be there. He is the defender on Toronto's roster, the only defender who can contain Kevin Durant. So Kawhi's role suddenly changes drastically, which opens up a whole bunch of stuff for the Golden State Warriors. It it, it sort of goes without saying, Danny. Um, But I I do think with so much conversation entering the series about how they don't need KD, last night so many of the reasons why they do did, did appear.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily they don't need KD. It was just like, this is fun to... It's fun to know that the Warriors are still the Warriors. They're still the Warriors of old. They're still the Warriors of four years ago. Even without that, like, just all-time presence in their lineup, they can still conjure the kind of magic that made them so compelling four years ago. I think... Ultimately, look, the league has gotten a lot better in those four years, whether or not we've been able to see it. Like, KD has kind of, I don't know, insulated the team from a lot of what has been going on in the league uh, around them. He's just given them that extra level that they didn't, they didn't really need to care about anyone other than their own, you know, their own system. And so, I don't know, it, it, was, it was a nice reminder, but ultimately, yeah, of course they need KD.
0: We have loads of other content about the NBA Finals up on the ringer.com. John Gonzalez was in Jurassic Park last night, and he captured the entire vibe, made you feel like you were there last night. Dan Devine was there, but he was in the building, and he covered how impressive Toronto's depth was last night. And Yugetti did the winners and losers of Game 1. And Danny, you wrote about the absolutely wonderful Pascal
1: Siakam. He's back. Just like the Raptors. He's back. Before we move on, I
0: have to tell you about the Ringers 2019 NBA Draft Guide at 50's 50 of my full schedule reports, including rankings from myself, Danny Chow, and Jonathan Sharks, with team needs and commentary from guys like Roger Sherman. And it will be updated sometime earlier mid-next week, and we're going to expand to 60 full profiles and have a mock draft as well. also wanted to tell you about a fundraiser I'm running during the NBA Finals called Dunk on Cancer. It can be found at dunkoncancer.com. We're raising money for every dunk in the NBA Finals. You're able to donate. A lot of people are doing $1 per dunk, which means... For every dunk in the NBA Finals, money is going towards cancer research and treatment at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. We have almost $50,000 in donations already and it's not even game 2 yet of the finals. So if you want to join in and make the finals a little bit more meaningful with each dunk, go to dunkoncancer.com. Anyway, Danny, up next, we are going to be doing our NBA Finals Draft Comparison Awards and Basically, just to explain what this is, is every year in the playoffs, we see players get exposed. We see players who are great regular season players turn into non-impactful postseason players. And it's like Draymond Green said, there are 82 game players and then there are 16 game players. Right now in the finals with the Raptors and the Warriors, we're seeing a lot of 16 game players in the postseason. So these are comparison awards towards... Draft prospects that sort of fit the mold. These aren't perfect one to one comparisons. We're not saying anybody's going to be the next Draymond or the next Kawhi. It's just guys that sort of fit the idea in the mold of that player long term once they develop into their prime. So Danny, you want to kick us off?
1: Yeah, I, and I I do want to reiterate too, like we're not comparing them like one-to-one in terms of, you know, identical skill sets. It's more like, what does this player embody and what can a prospect necessarily take from that mentality? And so the first award we're going to do, the Kawhi Leonard award uh, goes to the the projected role player who has star upside in the NBA. And for me, I'm looking at a guy who has maybe one of the highest ceilings um, outside of the lottery uh, and it's Taylor Horton Tucker from Iowa State. Uh, 6'4", 230, probably 235. He's a beefy boy. Uh, Maybe 300. Yeah, honestly. seven <laughs> one <7'1 laughs> and a half uh, foot wingspan. Um, He's the youngest player projected to be drafted in the first round, and he's just a round ball of clay, like almost literally. Uh, his his efficiency was pretty bad uh, in his freshman year, but he had... Just, the kind of broad strokes to be many different types of players. He's powerful, great first step, has the wingspan that some centers would love to have. Um, he has a low center of gravity, kind of has a lot of comfort in handling the ball in the pick and roll. He has a lot of ambition, doesn't really have the, the finesse to kind of put it all together yet. But that's a player with incredible upside, with all those skills that you know NBA teams are looking for. You know he's going to be starting off as a role player just because he's so young and he doesn't really have a defined um, elite skill. But you know, three four years down the line, you're looking at you're looking at a guy with all the physical attributes and all of the broad strokes of you know modern skill sets across multiple positions. I think he has a really strong shot at being (laughs) better than where he's drafted.
0: I'm glad we started off with him, because I got to be honest with you, Danny, Horton Tucker scares the hell out of me. Yeah, of uh, course. <laughs> he scares me. I have him ranked 32 on my board. Maybe I'm being a bit too risk adverse with him. Uh, I think you have him 13th or or 14th on your board. Right. I'm just concerned that so much of the appeal with him is his age, his youth, um, that he is somebody that we're looking at as youth, and that assuming he will get better over time. but. I again I just have some serious concerns with his shot selection, his decision making, his touch. Uh, he's a poor free throw shooter, he's a average th- three point shooter statistically last year and, and as a freshman at Iowa State. With him like he's somebody who w- when we look back at our rankings 5 or 10 years from now I might be like damn, I really missed on Horton Tucker. What what a fool I was to have him that low. right? Um, but, but I think from draft league. Yes, yeah, it, but he's somebody that I'm like, you know what? I'll let him be somebody else's right. you know, problem or, or, or savior. Um, He's a low, low, low floor, high ceiling guy that I'm just not feeling super confident about to take a, take a shot at. But I can definitely see the appeal as, a, as the Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard Award. Let's move on to the Draymond Green Award, which goes to the super switchable guy that can also pass the ball.
1: Oh man, I, I'm. I think I know where we're going here. Uh, I think the player' his name starts with a Z, right?
0: Yeah. Let, let's um. <laughs> let's ignore Zion Williamson though, because oh. we have talked about him a ton. It can't be Zion. Everybody knows him. So let's go with another Z. Zylan Cheatham, a redshirt senior from Arizona State. Um, he's he's become one of my favorite players in the draft, Danny. Uh, he's six foot eight. With a seven-foot wingspan, he is an elite athlete, and I use elite purposely. He is an elite athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he plays with intensity and focus that you don't find from players too often. And I mean that like in a, a Marcus Smart, Draymond Green, P.J. Tucker type of mentality. He defends across positions in college with point guards and wings and forwards and, and sometimes even centers in the NBA. I think he projects as a guy who can do the same thing aside from big, beefy centers, the Embiid types. But what makes him, for me, a a Draymond type is that he can also pass the ball. And there's very few players with his type of athleticism and size and length on defense that can also handle the ball and playmake off the dribble on offense. So the question with him moving forward is going to be the jump shot. He did not shoot the ball well at all in college. He had to change his shooting mechanics since the end of the college season, and he has, and I think it's a positive that he's shown the willingness to change his mechanics, whether it translates to the court, whether it translates to NBA range from the corners and from the three-point line remains to be seen. But I think with Cheatham, he is somebody that I have 24th on my board. A lot of people expect him to go undrafted, but I have a hard time I have a hard time finding reasons why he's not a first round pick despite the lack of the jump shot, but despite the fact he's 23 years old right. as a red shirt senior, I think he warrants a high selection this year's draft because high character, guy. Che- high character guy who has so many translatable skills on the defensive end of the floor and as a playmaker in a draft that has so many players with endless question marks with only theoretical skills that are translatable.
1: Right. Yeah, and he you've mentioned, he is on the older side even for a senior. Uh he will be 24 during the NBA regular season. He's 23 now. Um, he's old. He's old. But, you know, he was a transfer, uh it it makes a little bit more sense in that in that regard. And as you said, like he has a bunch of these skills that NBA teams covet and at a certain point in this draft specifically that's kind of what you're looking for. You're looking to kind of fill in the kind of missing gaps that your team schematically could use. This guy isn't going to be a star, but he's definitely going to be able to play.
0: I sort of look at him at like, when it comes to age, we see guys come into the draft at uh, come into the league at 24, 25 years old all the time. McKinney was 25 as a rookie with the Raptors. He's 26. Now with the Warriors, PJ Tucker didn't come into the back into the league until he was 27 years old after time overseas. And, and with Cheatham, he just spent a lot of time in college. He was a transfer from San Diego State, and then and he was also redshirted as well. So he's old. like That's undeniable. Right. Um, but I think if you're looking strictly at his skills, regardless of the level of competition, overseas or college or G League, I just think he has a lot that
1: warrants a guy that's draftable and a guy that deserves a shot in the NBA. I just like every time I, I see players like Cheatham, I always think back to guys like Dominic McGuire. Who like were just lost in the n b a in in like the mid aughts because they had no position, and you know he was an super athletic six eight dude who could do a little bit of everything but couldn't really do much of anything and I'm just like, man, what would that player look like in two thousand nineteen and it's just like maybe he'd look like Cheatham, and maybe Cheatham mm-hmm. ends up being a kind of you know a a draymond in a role player sense you know like a, yeah the Draymond of the bench. (laughs) I like
0: that, Danny. Who do we have next?
1: Uh, Next up, I think, is one of our favorites, a corner three favorite. The Pascal Siakam Award uh, goes to the hustler who probably needs to show that he has a jumper in the NBA to truly translate um, and truly validate where he gets drafted. And I think that goes to Brandon Clark of Gonzaga. We've talked about him plenty. Uh, There are definitely concerns about who he can be at the NBA level. He didn't have a great um, anthropomorphic measurement day at the NBA Combine. His wingspan is not up to par uh, for a guy who projects to be a small ball five, uh, a four in the NBA, but there's just so much to like about his game. He is one of the best defenders in the draft. Uh, He is a hard worker and like like Cheatham, actually a transfer who had to overhaul his jump shot and really showed incredible touch uh, in his one season in at Gonzaga. And I don't know, I'm I'm just madly in love with the guy. I think Chark's even more so. Um, <laughs> Chark's has him second on his board. Still, yep, <laughs> yep. Um, uh. And, when yeah, we do the
0: update on the NBA draft guide, have you gotten rankings um, from Charks yet from Hawaii? Uh, I'm curious if he's still second on Charles. Probably board? not,
1: but, okay, okay. you know. <laughs> yeah, I, and honestly, like, we talk about Pascal Siakam, and, and one of the the major things that he's been kind of known for this season has been his devastating spin move. Brandon Clark has a little bit of that, too, and he has a little bit of that playmaking finesse as well. Um off the dribble and, and kind of as a role, man, there's a lot to like there. And I think he, I think he's a really, really smart defensive player, uh, an incredible rim protector given his size. Yeah. I think
0: Clark, we, all three of us, me, you and sharks have him as a lottery pick. Uh, I think Clark is going to be a guy who despite the some of the knocks on him with the lack of a jumper, um, or rather the the iffy jump shot, his shorter wingspan, he more than makes up for it with his effort, with his athleticism, and just his flat-out skills and feel uh, for the game. I, I think Clark is going to be one of those long-term NBA players, whether he is a lottery pick or he slips into the back of the first round because he'll be 23 as a rookie. Sometimes I think age gets so overblown right. oftentimes with prospects and I hope for Clark he isn't necessarily knocked for that, but he probably will be to to an extent. I, I he he's a guy that I, he's going to be a player for a long time. I mean,
1: an, hey, another uh point of comparison between him and him and Siakam, they they will both be twenty three in terms of their first season in the NBA. So,
0: and by the way, like I look back at Siakam, I had him ranked like I think forty in that in that draft. And I I with him, I, my mistake was just overthinking the, the jump shot overthinking the the defensive fundamentals because in college he he could defend um, but he sometimes moved a little bit slow laterally he had some fundamental issues like defending on his heels and, or rather defending on the balls of his feet and, and that's that was a concern that I had because not all guys get the right teaching in order to improve their their fundamentals on defense but I undersold the effort the mindset that he had. And that's something with Brandon Clark or, or Zylan Cheatham. I'm going to sound like, like a, like a 55 year old, like old school coach, but you, you know, already I'm do, guys, man. Uh, I want guys who play hard, Danny. <laughs> I want guys who want to win. And Clark and Cheatham and Siakam, those are winners. Those are guys that you want to bet on. You don't want to bet on a a guy who doesn't really love the game or a guy who's not willing to put in extra effort in the gym, a guy who's not willing to do the things that are necessary in order to improve their weaknesses. So Clark is a guy that I want to bet on. Like, Give me that guy on my team rather than the guy who there's questions about how hard he's actually going to work, even if there's more theoretical skill. Let's move on to the Marcus Sol Award, which goes to the playmaking big man who can also shoot threes. We've talked about this guy before, uh, Goga Pitazzi. He is a center from Mega playing overseas. He's one of my, again, favorite prospects in the draft. 19 years old, 6'11 with a 7'2 wingspan. This season, uh, Goga is somebody who hasn't proved defensively. Uh, when he was at younger younger levels, he was not a great defender. And there's still questions about how he, like any center in today's league, can survive in this pace and space perimeter oriented league. However, I think Chark's made a great point in an article he wrote a couple of weeks ago or maybe a couple of months ago how with centers in today's league, you need to be able to offer offense you need to make an impact on that on the floor because it's so hard to actually make a tangible impact on defense and goga is somebody he can space the floor from three he can pass the hell out of the ball he's somebody who can screen and short roll and pop he is a good all-around offensive player with the potential to get even better as he gets into his 20s and i think this season he's shown that he can survive defensively he is competitive, at least. He is somebody who has improved laterally, and he rebounds too. So, Goga to me checks a lot of the boxes as a guy who can space the floor, who can pass the ball, and at least survive defensively.
1: Yeah, there's like strong shades of Yusuf Nurkic with a three ball. Um, I, I think I saw like a clip a few weeks ago of him just like pulling up from three in a in a pretty important game. I was like, oh crap, okay. I, I i didn't see that coming, um, and he's he's also like a very <laughs> like instinctual rim protector. He's, he's definitely not a guy who's going to be like chasing dudes around, but in short spaces, he's actually pretty agile and pretty quick. Um, it's just when you have him defending in space, he one of the slower one of the slower guys in the draft, <laughs> to put it yeah. lightly. Who do we got next, Danny? Oh yeah. Uh so the next one is kind of a a strange uh award to be giving out. We'll, let we'll call it the Steph Curry Award. <laughs> but uh that doesn't really feel right. So maybe let's we'll call, call it the Quinn Cook Award. Let, let's call Quinn it Cook. the Quinn Cook Award. Uh for the best <laughs> yes. shooting point guard uh in this draft. I think we have a couple options here. Uh the first is probably it, it is it fair to say Darius Garland? He only played 5 games. You
0: know, (laughs) it almost feels insulting (laughs) to call uh, a projected lottery pick the Quinn Cook Award. But I see, but I see your point. It's not, (laughs) it's not an insult. It's the best shooting guard in the draft, Uh, the best shooting point guard in the draft. And, and Garland, we talked about this a couple weeks ago on a podcast and comparing Garland to Morant. There are questions about Garland's defense. There are questions about his true playmaking ability, Uh, but there's no doubt that that dude could shoot the hell out of the ball with his shot creation ability from the perimeter.
1: Mm-hmm. Are there yeah. any
0: others that stand out, Danny, besides Garland?
1: I mean, one guy who stands out for me is Carson Edwards uh, out of Purdue. I mean, he chucked 10 threes per game uh, in his final season at Purdue. Uh, he shot it at around 36%, but overall in his career, I think he's up to around 37%. He's a good three-point shooter. Uh, Edwards is interesting for me just because when we're talking about Steph Curry, when we're talking about Quinn Cook, these these kind of quintessential Warriors point guards— Um, I like Edwards in that he kind of creates a lot of opportunities for others because of how he plays off the ball. Um, He's pretty thick for his size. He's pretty comfortable setting screens uh, away from the action. He definitely won't be shooting 10 threes per game in the NBA. So like any kind of extra ability for him to kind of create shots out on the perimeter is definitely something that teams will be looking at. So yeah, I I don't know. Like we're definitely not looking at the next Steph Curry there, but Carson Edwards can definitely be a Quinn Cook guy. (laughs) One other guy I want to mention is
0: Justin Wright Foreman, a senior from Hofstra. Wright Foreman is somebody who I, I hate, I hate even saying this, but like he reminds me of somebody who could be an Isaiah Thomas type of steal. Mm. Um, there, there's a, there's a slim chance that that would happen. Um, a lot needs to break right for a player in his development, but he's a smaller point guard, six one or six two. Um, so shifty with the ball in his hands, the ability to change speeds, change directions, and he can shoot an extremely high level off the dribble from deep range from three. He does not need to extend his range. And not only that he's somebody who I think beyond the numbers, he averaged only 2.9 assists assist last season as a senior, which is not good. Um, but I think he's sort of an underrated passer. I, I think he made some tough passes. When you really dive into the film with him, he makes some tough cross court passes from underneath the rim that quote unquote, score first guards don't usually make so with foreman with right foreman i do wonder with him is it a matter of opportunity to become that pass first that pass guy because in college he shared the backcourt with with a guy who passed the ball a lot and i think with right foreman may not get drafted but to me he's a guy that would be near the top of my undrafted list if he does fall out of the drafts
1: right and i guess this trance Transfers us to uh, one of the least sexy awards we can possibly give. Uh, the Alfonso McKinney Award goes to the future, like goes to a future role player who will probably need to spend time in the G League to develop. <laughs> um, my guy is Simi Shitu. Uh, he is a six ten physical specimen out of Canada. Um, he was a top twenty recruit. Went to Vanderbilt lost Darius Garland within five games and just kind of wandered in the wilderness of Vanderbilt's completely horrendous season. Um, But there's just so much to like in terms of his build, his unique skills for the position that he plays. So he's probably going to be playing four and five, but he can handle the ball. He can take the ball uh, coast to coast. Um, He's shown the ability to make pretty solid passes He was recovering from a torn ACL in his freshman season, so I think that probably played a little bit of a role in terms of his struggles in the season. I don't know. I I just think there's something there, and when you have a guy with that kind of physical talent, put him in the G League, let him kind of figure things out against grown men. Why not? I I
0: think with with Simi Shitu, my my one hang-up with him entering after the college season was what I had hoped to see entering the season. That was a productive jump shot. He, he shot only one for 18 from three, only 58% from the free throw line. And I think with all the skills that you're detailing, I am with you 100% on all the positive traits, but with for, but for all that to be activated, for all that to matter, you got to be able to space the floor and shit too, for me has not shown the touch Or the shooting ability uh, at this stage of his career for me to really feel super confident that and that manifesting for him long term but that's the point that's why the award is the alfonso mckinney award by having a guy spend time in the g-league moving on to a guy that did get lost in the shuffle um, but and had to spend a little bit of time in the g-league was danny green the Danny Green Award goes to the potential high-end 3 D player, and the obvious choice here, Danny, is Matisse Thibel uh, a senior from Washington. He will not go undrafted. He will not be a second undraft pick in all oh, no. likelihood. Thibel had one of the greatest statistical defensive seasons of all time last year at Washington playing within their zone defense. He was able to roam off ball and, and jump passing lanes like a free safety, and that's not going to be what he's able to do in the NBA, but Within that concept, he did show just his tenacity and his focus and his awareness defending off the ball, and that's critical in today's NBA, especially when you're defending guys that can shoot the hell out of the ball from three. So I think Thibel has those tools to be a great off-ball perimeter defender, but also with him. On the ball, I think it's pretty clear with his lateral ability, with his athleticism, and again, his focus, intensity, and mindset for for him to be a great on-ball defender. So he has that going for him to be a great potential great defender in the NBA. The question will be, like it was for Danny Green uh, after four years at North Carolina, is – how real is his jump shot what level does the shot reach for him he shot only 36% from 3 in college which is fine he got better over his 4 years there um but but Danny it seems to be really a matter of can this be can, can Thibeul be a great shooter can he be a good shooter or is he just going to be one of those average below average shooters that doesn't really warrant defensive attention
1: right and i think one thing that Thibel has over Danny Green and i think something that kind of raises his ceiling in that regard is that he's a much better athlete He's shown yep. the ability to make place for others on occasion, and he definitely has more wiggle and and ball handling ball handling ability than Danny Green has ever shown in his career. Um, and in that regard, and also in the in terms of his just defensive genius, it kind of reminds me of Andre Iguodala, another Ooh, guy okay. in this finals. Um, there are some plays that Thibault made with his hands, just like just stripping balls away and, and kind of prying balls loose and really just like taking, com- taking command of the defense from the perimeter, which is so hard to do at any level of the game. It really reminded me of some, some of those like defensive genius plays that Andre Iguodala has made over the past four years in the, in the, in the finals and in the postseason.
0: You know, with Thibel, I don't think he has the playmaking ability, the ball handling ability that Iguodala has, right. but he's again, he's an underrated passer within his role. He's a smart player um, who, again, can pass within the flow of the team concept. And sometimes that's just as important as a guy that can be a shot creator for you. You want guys who can make the right play at the right time. And Thibault seems to be somebody who's going to be able to translate that to the next level. Uh, Moving on to the Serge Ibaka Award, which goes to the shot blocker who can roll to the rim and shoot deep twos and maybe, (laughs) hopefully, (laughs) hopefully sometimes three-pointers. I'm going to give this to Fiondu Cabangeli. He is a big man from Florida State, the nephew of Dikemi Mutombo. Yes. Um, He is somebody to me that his shot blocking ability, he got it from. His uncle. He yeah. got it from Matumbo. It's, it's, it's in there his blood. Inside him. It is. And there's no doubt his shot blocking can translate to the NBA. Um, He shot the ball very well last year at Florida State. 70, 37% from the three-point line. 77% from the free throw line. Again, one of those guys, as we hit on earlier, who just plays hard. And that, for me, is one of those traits that I look for in guys that are going to be late first-round draft picks, early second-rounders. I think Kevin Gelly is... Not a guarantee to be a long-term pro in the NBA, a guy who can be, like we said at the top, a guy who contributes at a high end um, in the playoffs. He needs to solve his falling issue. We saw last round in the Western Conference Finals how that's still an issue for somebody like Zach Collins, <laughs> who shows a lot of these uh, similar strengths with his shot blocking and his shooting. I mean, like you and I and Sharks all like him, Danny. Yeah. But the fouling is something that needs to get better for Cabangetti, um, as well as a couple other things on the defensive end with his positioning and his awareness. But he has a baseline of skills for him to be at least be warranted as a f- late first round draft pick.
1: Right. And look, some of those fouling issues never go away. Sometimes you're just a wily defender who doesn't ever really process the game at a, a fast enough speed for it to kind of slow down for you. Like, Sergi Baca still has moments where he makes boneheaded moves where he bites on pump fakes. It's still yeah. a part of his game. And he's, you know, in his, what, 10th season now. Um, and that could be the case for Gali. but I don't know. I, I believe in a lot of his positive skills. He's, he's just a really, really talented, instinctual um, rim protector. And I can also kind of see him being a kind of Kavon Looney type of project in the right system. So Looney was drafted as a sort of new age forward who can kind of do a little bit of everything at UCLA, shot threes, kind of took guys off the dribble. He was a point guard in high school, blah, blah, blah. But now when you think of Looney, what do you think of? You kind of think of a new age Kendrick Perkins, right? It's like he's he's mm.
0: he's okay, he's yeah, basically a, a,
1: a stout defender who knows yeah. exactly what he can do and exactly what he's good at but doesn't really do much beyond that. And I think there's value <laughs> in that for a lot of winning teams. Kavan Gele has some bad tendencies and he can kind of play as though, you know, he's trying to be a guard, but those tendencies can be ironed out if you put him in, you know, a, a winning system pot- potentially. You know, he he's he's a big man who checks a lot of boxes. One of my favorite types of big men are the ones who could shoot free throws at a high percentage. Uh, he's one of those guys. And so maybe you take a risk on him and maybe you, you think, okay, we can kind of streamline his responsibilities on the floor. And suddenly you're looking at a very, very high, you know, high floor uh, type of player.
0: Danny, can, can we agree that there is no award for a Clay Thompson or Kevin Durant in this year's draft
1: class? Um, yeah, I, I think we can. Okay. Okay.
0: Um, <laughs> well, listeners, uh, we would love to know if there's a, a Fred Van Vleet or a, a Kyle Lowry or a Quinn cook, uh, in this year's draft class or any of the other, uh, players that we discussed. So like use hashtag the corner three on Twitter or Instagram, uh, or send it, send us a direct tweet or message about that. Cause I, I'm curious, like what are your best comparisons to guys in the finals For players in this year's draft class. Um, Danny, we have one last piece of news before we get out of here. Uh, Jonathan Gavoni from Draft Express, now ESPN reported this morning that there's a chance the Knicks could trade down from the number three pick. They're, they're at least exploring offers, including (laughs) a package from the, from the Atlanta Hawks who have the eighth and the tenth pick. Um, what is your main takeaway from this piece of news regarding the Knicks thought process on the draft and perhaps their perception of RJ Barrett?
1: At this point, it feels as though they're basically banking on Kyrie and KD, and now they're just trying to build some depth around them. Like I, yeah. we we've been we've been talking about RJ and and his fit with a lot of these kind of, um, a lot of these teams at the top of the lottery, and how he might not be the perfect fit on any of these teams. Especially me and Chark's saying this, you very you know strongly defended his honor. In the, in the last uh, <laughs> Memorial Day edition of the corner yes. three. Um, but that's kind of the takeaway I, I have here. Maybe they're just not looking for a dude who's trying to be, you know, the next great, you know, two guard, the next great, you know, ball handling uh, player when you have much better options in that regard
0: in Katie and Kyrie Irving who have yeah. not signed there yet. Who have not, who have not. So <laughs> yes, this, so this all not, feels yes. like, you
1: know, you're, you're, you're shopping for a baby that has yet to be conceived. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: <laughs> I mean, I mean, you can have, you know, the due date it's July 1st, you know, if it's a boy <laughs> or a girl, you have an idea uh, of when that baby's coming. Uh, if you're the Knicks, I personally, I think it makes a lot of sense for them, especially if they know KD's coming or they know KD and Kyrie or Kemba Walker or whoever else is coming with him because I think Barrett can work, but I'd rather have two guys. Yeah. I mean, of all the names we just mentioned, I, I think there's guys that can be found in this year's draft who can fit alongside star players. Like this this isn't this isn't a great draft class. There's a lot of guys with question marks, but if you're the Knicks, would you rather have cam reddish at eight and 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 brandon clark at 10 or rj barrett i I think you'd probably rather have the former in the two guys who can who can be on rookie scale contracts and build around two championship level players i think that's the right formula and the right mindset for the Knicks to be taking here um, as the draft approaches and by the way like we saw this the past two years We saw Atlanta trade down from three to five last year, trading Luca for Trey Young. And maybe that's, that will be a poor decision. Um, but we saw it. And then we saw it the year before with Boston trading down from one to three with Markel Fultz for Tatum and the Kings pick that they have this year at number 14. So we've seen this two years in a row now. Uh, and it would not surprise me if we see it again. The team above the Knicks at number two. Gavoni also reported they wanted to schedule a workout with RJ Barrett. Um RJ's working out with the Knicks on I think June 10th. Uh, Gavoni reported and but Memphis was not able to get one with RJ Barrett. He declined a workout uh with the Grizzlies. I wonder okay oh, Memphis on. Is, is this is this Memphis trying to just stir the pot trying to raise value of the second pick perhaps to force the Knicks to trade up one spot or is this them doing their due diligence or is this them having questions about actually taking John Morant? because I like the fit with RJ Barrett's go-to scoring ability next to Mike Conley as just an overall leaning towards pass first point guard.
1: Oh yeah. I, I mean, I think we're in agreement in there. Uh, I think RJ Barrett, his perfect fit amongst the top four teams would probably be the Memphis Grizzlies given uh, his ability to Kind of create his own shot, and the fact that the, the Grizzlies have really been looking for a, a solid wing for the past like eight years now. Um, but I, I do, I do think, I do think they're they're doing their due diligence. Like, why wouldn't you? Yeah. You have the second yeah. pick in the draft. Um, wait, so Barrett is trying to avoid this? Like, he he's not. Perhaps okay. Uh,
0: Gavoni did Gavoni did say that there's still time for them to schedule a workout, but he did decline. The initial invitation to work out for the Grizzlies. To me, this this reminds me of so much of the time that Chris taps, Porzingis and his then agent Andy Miller uh, steered him towards the Knicks. Um, this time will be different. The Knicks have cap space. The Knicks have a real significant chance of signing KD and somebody else. It's
1: different. They have better options. Um,
0: yes, but for RJ Barrett, you got to be thinking about what happens if they trade you. Uh, I think Memphis, on paper, is a great fit for him. And if, theoretically, the Knicks select R.J. Barrett and they do the Andrew Wiggins thing where they trade him 30 days after he's eligible to be traded, you don't have a choice where you go. You don't have a choice. And with R.J. Barrett, you have at least the potential of going to a situation with the Grizzlies that the supporting cast with a potential co-star in Jaron Jackson, who perfectly compliments you on both ends of the floor. He, Jaron Jackson is a player, like we discussed last year's draft class, Sharks had him, I believe, second on his board. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackson is somebody who can play next to anybody, and he can enhance R.J. Barrett's ability uh, as an offensive player, and he can cover for some of his occasional limitations on defense. Um, and perhaps I think with that, with that mindset that they have with that roster there with Mike Conley as a veteran, RJ playing in a winning situation, maybe activates some of that defensive potential. Maybe it activates some of his playmaking ability that we saw at Duke um, on occasion when he had actual floor spacing. Uh, If if I'm RJ Barrett and his representatives, I'm thinking really hard about actually giving the Grizzlies a workout because that would be a great fit for him. Absolutely. Danny, that's all we have time for today. Great pod. And that was fun. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the NBA show. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Share the podcast with your friends. And oh, by the way, uh, thank you for everybody who has donated or, or, or shared um, the Dunk on Cancer fundraiser that I've been doing uh, during the NBA Finals. That uh, That's meant the world. Uh, it's been really cool to, to see that response so far. Um, thank you for checking that out. And again, thank you for listening to The Ringer NBA Show. Check out our website. We have so much NBA Finals coverage on there. Gons and Divine did a podcast last night that is already up in your feed. Give that a listen. Special shout out to Bobby Wagner for producing today's show. Thank you again for listening. Peace.